we are attentive to God, we notice those around us that we can serve. We notice the afflicted, the poor, the broken down. And when we worship and when we notice these things, Isaiah says that our light will break forth like the dawn. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Uh, Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inspired inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. When Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared, Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may go and worship him as well. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of him went went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mary Oliver uh, commenting on poetry, on good poetry, what makes poems good, whether it's ancient poetry or modern poetry. She writes that the subjects that stir the heart are not so many after all, and they do not change. The subjects that stir the heart are not so many after all, and they do not change. Christian worship affirms that our single greatest longing or stirring of the heart is God alone. And that to worship God is our greatest and most enjoyable activity. So the epiphany, which if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, is just the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles or to all the, all the world, all the known world. And it's a story about worship. Epiphany can mean, of course, uh, something like a light bulb coming on. It's the dawning of light. But specifically, in English, we understand it. Usually you hear it in Christian worship circles, and we talk about uh, the appearance of of Christ, uh, the Magi coming and worshiping. And so that's what this story is about. Uh, There's a great element in this story of, and what you see is, you know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, you anticipate that, Matthew's going to have Jesus saying, hey, you guys are my disciples now. In light of the resurrection and the news of the gospel, you need to go into all the nations. 
Go into all the nations or all ethnic groups. Anywhere that they speak any kind of language, you need to take the gospel to those places because that's, that's what happens. That's what the good news does. And so it's interesting that at the beginning of the story, Matthew has all the nations coming to Jesus. And then all the nations of the world are represented in these wise men or these Easterners, and we call them, you know, the three kings. We deduce that there were three throughout history just because there were three gifts. We don't know how many there were, but they came. They were unlikely worshipers of Jesus. And they don't only come and, like, stick their head in the door. They fall down on their faces, and they worship when they come in the presence of Jesus. And so they kind of paved the way for us as Christian worshipers. You know, none of us came to the faith because of just how we were born. We didn't have the right lineage or anything, but we follow, in a way, we follow these wise men to Jesus. God led the wise men to Jesus, and God leads us to his presence where we have been invited to worship. And so the wise men, in a way, are kind of our, they're the forebears of Christian worship, and they're laying their lives, their gifts, their hearts down in the presence of God. Divine guidance is fascinating here, and of course, we've speculated over the years as to what exactly the star might be. We don't know, and we, had, we just had a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn recently, and so it's easy to understand how something like that in the sky, if you were paying attention, could really lead you in a certain direction. I mean, how many days could we look uh, southwest and see that convergence, which was really bright and was only visible for a little while, and it looked like it was taking us a certain direction? So maybe it was that. There's a report of that around this time. Uh, also, in the Old Testament, it's common for angels to be associated with stars. So for all we know, it was an angel that appeared like a star that was leading the wise men. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know somehow that God was leading these men to worship Jesus, leading them to the presence of Jesus where they could do whatever they wanted, and what they chose to do was bring their lives and worship. It's a great story. And the characters in this story, the main characters are, and I love how Matthew introduces Joseph, the husband of Mary— of whom Jesus was born. That's, that's what we hear first about Joseph in the genealogy of Jesus. We have the main characters of the wise men, which we've talked about. And then we have this character, this ominous character of Herod. And Herod was a temperamental ruler and a ruthless killer. And the word Herod can be used to summarize all the rulers that ruled in that family. Uh, but we know this particular one. And it's just a violent story. It's a wild story. And it's a story where the light of Christ shines in the midst. And these characters remind us that one major arc in the story of God's salvation. So we talk about the story of God's salvation, or you hear someone say salvation history. We're talking about the way that God interacts in actual history and real time and space on behalf of us, on behalf of humanity. One of these major arcs in this story is that God opposes the proud, as James said, but he gives grace to the humble, right? He lifts up the humble. And here the humble can be identified as the strangers, the seekers, and the sound-hearted. Y'all like that? I, I had to do three S's. I was looking through this this week. I was like, there's three things going on here that I can see. There's plenty going on that I don't see, but I kept the S's in case that helps you. If it annoys you, I'll try not to say it too much. Uh, but, but the strangers, the seekers, and the sound-hearted, I mean, that's, that's kind of where this story arc is bent towards, and those are the, that's what happens in this story. The wise men emerge. They are strangers. They are seekers, and we find out from their response to Jesus that they're sound in their heart. Joseph is a stranger. 
Joseph is a seeker, right? He's dreaming and interacting with God and God's messengers. Joseph is faithful. He's sound in his heart. He has integrity all the way through the story. And for these strangers and these seekers and these sound of heart, their cultivated response is worship. It's to worship. Even at the beginning of Matthew's story with the genealogy, it's a list of strangers, right? I mean, think about all the way back to Abraham. I mean, Abraham had to go in his old age to a country that he'd never been to before. He was a stranger, and that was the place where God was going to begin fulfilling his promises to his people, to Abraham. Uh, we have people like Ruth in the story, strangers. We have people like Joseph who emerge. I mean, it's a great list of strangers and people who are seekers of God, who are sound in their heart. Joseph has a dream. Joseph dreams about the way this is going to happen, and he obeys, and this all comes to pass. We don't get a lot of details about how Jesus was born, just that he was born, and here's how it came about, you know, at the beginning, and here's what God told Joseph. And what happens to the wise men? Follow it just right after Joseph, they have a dream, and they learn how to be faithful to God. And one way is to not go back to Herod, right, to kind of trick. So Herod learns that he's been tricked, and he's really angry. But these are seekers. These are people who are sound-hearted. And worship, I think, emerges in this story, in this text. Uh, at the beginning of a new year, uh, worship emerges as a good reminder that the number one job of any church is to worship. That's our primary work. If we ever wonder what the purpose of the church is, our very most important number one priority all times in history and until the end of all things will be to worship. That's our glorious vocation. It's our job as Christians. And when we gather as a church, we gather with two or three in our homes, when we say our prayers at night with our spouse, or with our kids, we're joining in the grand chorus of Christian worship. And we'll see in a little while that worship is not just about what we do through our songs and our prayers and we gather together in worship like this, but it involves how we live as well. And worship can seem so daunting. You know, on one hand, there are so many challenges. Uh, we live in a world that is filled with Herods. And it just seems, gosh, to get it all done and to get the kids ready in time and to get things going and to, we were so busy and night is filled and our bedtime routine is packed in and our morning routine is busy. On one hand, so daunting. And on the other hand, worship can seem insignificant. You know, it's such a waste of time. I mean, think of all the things we could be doing with our time. We're not here in church. We're not reading Scripture. We're not teaching our children the Lord's Prayer. We're not doing these kind of things. Worship can seem very insignificant. In fact, uh, one of the great American scholars, uh, Martha Dawn, she calls worship in one of her books a royal waste of time. Isn't that great? A royal waste of time. That's what worship is. And but worship can seem daunting, and it's easy to fall into that, well, it's insignificant, because it does seem like, when we wake up each day, that the world is run by Herod. It's just everywhere we look, there's another Herod. There's another ruler who's behaving like Herod. Or there's another economy that seems like it's behaving like Herod. Abraham Joshua Heschel writes that God is a stranger in our world. You know, we feel like strangers. We resonate with 
the wise men, and we know what it's like to feel like strangers in a world, all kinds of reasons we feel displaced, things going on around us, things going on in our families, things going on in our jobs, in our schools that can make us feel displaced. And Heschel kind of turns that and he said, you know, God, since the fall of humanity, I mean, we're cast out of the garden, and God, in a way, is a stranger in our world. And I love what he writes about He says that the glory of God, and he was a Jewish scholar, so he's writing about the Shekinah glory, right? The glory of God that followed the people, the cloud by day, the fire by night, the manifest glory of God, that that glory is in exile. And so to worship, Heschel writes, is to expand the presence of God in the world. Isn't that great? When we worship, we expand the presence of God. We bring the presence of God a little bit more out of exile. To have faith in God is to reveal what is otherwise concealed. And not only is Christian worship worth it, because God is worth it, but it is also one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. So the epiphany works like this. God reveals himself to the world through the birth of Christ, and then he reveals his light, the presence of Jesus to the world through his people through the church. That's how the light continues to go. Jesus even said as much, that you are, y'all are, the light of the world. When we think of worship, that's kind of part A for me. And part B is a turn, anytime we think about light, we think about the dawn of light in our lives and in the world, I think it's natural as, as readers of Scripture to go to the book of Isaiah There's this great string of chapters starting in verse 58 where there's a lot of language about how light, how God will send his light among his people. And he tells us how it's going to happen, how our influence is going to happen, what our influence as Christians, as believers, is going to look like. And Isaiah reminds us that it's natural to get the cart before the horse. You know, we all say, yeah, okay, great, Jesus, we're the light of the world, sounds good. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I'm not gonna hide it under a bush. Like, we're motivated. We want our light to shine. Like we, that's, that's what we want. We come out of the waters of baptism, we come out of worship and we say, yes, Lord, amen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let my light shine. And Isaiah reminds us that we, we have to get the first things first. It's not just about what we do when we're together in worship like this, but it's about what happens in our lives Monday through Saturday and what kind of work that we're involved in and how we're worshiping through our lives. And he reminds us that to have the influence that we know that we're called to have to bring light to a dark world It's important to make sure uh, what the early Protestants called works of mercy, that works of mercy, like serving the poor, accompany our works of piety. So works of piety would be things like prayer and worship and study and holy communion. These are things that we engage the senses, the five senses in, as we engage with God. And it can be personally, individually, it can be as a group. But we do these things with our, you know, that are more quiet disciplines, things that happen kind of where we're, we're in a, you know, in the, the whole imagery of a sanctuary, we're, we're safe in the ship's nave and we're here, we're worshiping, works of piety. But works of mercy are those things that we find ourselves doing out and about. When we recognize people that are in need, we recognize uh, things that need to change in our communities, we recognize families that we know that need help and so on and so forth. Isaiah talks about breaking the bonds 
of injustice. And we read these chapters, and they're beautiful to read. And it reminds me that we have to acknowledge the difficulty of doing this. You know, we read about breaking the bonds of the poor and the oppressed, and we look around and we go, gosh, this is such hard work. And how can we even begin to put a dent in all that we see? I mean, we see from top to bottom in society, we see the challenges and we live among the challenges. And it's easy to get frustrated and discouraged by all the things that we're not able to do or all the things that we're not sure of the best way to work towards. But at the beginning of this new year, as we contemplate what it looks like to worship with our lives, worship with our voices, I'm proud of the ways that I see this happening among us, just, just in our community and things that I've seen from you, the friendships that are cultivated, the ways that we feed the hungry together, the ways that we participate in the school systems together, the ways that we try to partner with the police force to work together, the ways that we run and work with local businesses to eliminate poverty through providing employment, the ways that we work in service professions the ways that we produce food and textiles. We can't do it all, all at once, but the little things that we're able to do and the pieces that we're putting together, Isaiah reminds us when we work in this way, our light will shine. Our light will break forth, he says, like the dawn. And for me, whether it, when it comes to worship, the greatest difficulty, whether it's worshiping at home at night before my head hits the pillow or whether it's worshiping here on a Sunday or whether it's worshiping through serving the poor and friendships, the greatest struggle that I have is busyness. I was asking myself this week, what's, the, what's my biggest barrier to this life of worship? And without a doubt, it's busyness. It's a constant just spinning the wheel in motion when I first get out of bed and just spending it as long as I can before I absolutely can't do anything else in the day. Busyness and distraction. And what happens when I'm over busy and over distracted is I lose sight of God. I lose sight of what the wise men saw. The reason this is a problem is because worship begins with attention to God. And when we are attentive to God, we notice those around us that we can serve. We notice the afflicted, the poor, the broken down. And when we worship and when we notice these things, Isaiah says that our light will break forth like the dawn and that our healing will spring up quickly. And so that's our hope and that's what we're working towards together. And that's the promise that we have when we live and worship this way that our light will shine and our healing will come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.